Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today my guest is Gary Wayne. First, I have a couple of announcements. The Forbidden Documentary Episode 1 is available as a pre-release for you to download right now. It's only $5. Just click the link in the description or visit our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.News. If you're a Rockfin subscriber, you can watch it directly there on Rockfin. Be sure to check out our friends at BGCast Podcast. They are featured on the Forbidden Knowledge Network, and they cover the Great Awakening live and everything it entails. Knowing that the spiritual path and the path of truth walk hand in hand, BGCast offers a positive perspective to the Great Awakening occurring on our planet. From interviews, breaking down complex spiritual and metaphysical principles, conspiracies, occult symbolism, and the paranormal, the goal of BG Cast is to spread some much needed healing the planet needs right now. Check them out live on Rumble 6 p.m. Mountain Wednesday, 3 p.m. Mountain Saturdays, as well as all podcast platforms and on the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You can now get Forbidden Knowledge News live five days a week on Rockfin Rumble and our website. That website, again, is ForbiddenKnowledge.News. It's also the Forbidden Knowledge Network, where we feature some of your favorite podcasts. And you can always get every new episode of Forbidden Knowledge News on Rockfin Rumble and all podcast platforms. Be sure to sign up on Rockfin, because that is where you get our premium content. You also get all the premium content from every incredible creator there on Rockfin. Just go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus or use the link right in the description. Today I want to welcome Gary Wayne. He is a Christian contrarian who has maintained a lifelong love affair with biblical prophecy, history, and mythology. His extensive study has encompassed the Bible and Gnostic scriptures, the Quran, Gilgamesh, 
and other ancient epics, as well as language etymology and secret society publications. Gary, welcome. How you doing? Doing very well, and thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Looking forward to the conversation, and I just know we're going to talk about some things that just might raise a few eyebrows today, so yeah, it should be fun. Oh, yeah. Always fun raising some eyebrows, of course. Well, welcome, and thank you so much for coming on. I've been looking forward to this as well. Today, we're going to be discussing your books. The first book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and the Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Mankind, as well as get a preview of the new book, which is just Genesis Conspiracy Part 2. And these are topics that are covered many times here at this show, and I've been looking forward to getting your insights and exploring the information from your book. We are undeniably in unusual and dystopian times, and looking back, it's really hard to deny the prophetic aspects and the direction humanity is being steered right now. From wars and pandemics to fake UFOs, maybe real UFOs, and a technocratic Luciferian system and new religion of science, technology, and transhumanism. And your book, as well as the upcoming book, dives deep into the historical and modern events and groups that really perpetuated this dystopian control system that we're in. So we've got a lot to cover, but this is your first time on. Gary, let the audience know a little bit more about yourself, your background, and what led you to write these books. Sure. So I like to call myself a Christian contrarian. Uh, biblically, for people who are very familiar with the Bible, they'll know that as a Berean that Paul ran up against, that I like to verify everything for myself. Uh, what somebody says or what somebody says is written or happened or anything like that. So I, uh, I, I am not uh, a minister. Uh, I am not uh, a prophet or anything like that and don't make any claims. I'm a researcher. And uh, I researched uh, the Bible starting back in the early 80s um, because I took a challenge to read a book that um, sort of changed my whole, whole trajectory of life. And it was a book called uh, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, which was a prophetic book. So as a contrarian, I wanted to verify whether or not what he was saying was accurate or not in context or not. So because the book scared the socks off of me, quite literally. And so I found that I thought he was quoting things accurately, but I didn't know enough about the Bible to make a larger assessment of that. So I thought I would do something unique after I knew I had to read the whole book to get a good feel for the context. And by the time I got into the New Testament and listening to Jesus' words, I mean, I just knew something was preternatural about that whole affair uh, with Jesus coming, and it set me on a path back to becoming a Christian. And then I realized I needed, there was so much going on in the Bible, I needed to log the different prophecy trails. And so I started to log that, uh, putting them in files, and I started with highlights, ran out of highlights right away, so I had to, <laughs> too many uh, paths on it, so I had to create another system and several other ones because there's just so much information. But I ran into Genesis 6 very early on in the logging of 
interesting things in the Bible, and I ignored it because I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, it was just too crazy, and it wasn't what I was there to do, and I wasn't quite ready yet to maybe take that whole concept on. So I ignored it, but when I went back through again, because I knew I had to do it a few times to make sure I had everything on the prophecy trails, I decided, you know, angels, giants, Demons come up way too often in the Bible and including in um, Revelation for most of the characters. And I would even make an argument for all of the beings, including the giants in the end time. Um, so I decided to log that as well. And so I was also a history buff when I was growing up and a mystery buff. And I read a lot. So I knew there were some parallels um with what's talked about in the bible and elsewhere and so when i decided to write a book because i have several that i would like to do um all mostly on prophecy i thought i would start with something easy and short and mm -hmm. so i decided can i connect genesis 6 with what's going on in the book of revelation and write a quick easy sort of book on that the trouble is you have to start explaining some things right <laughs> because you just can't say, okay, giants, <laughs> and, and say, okay, they're going to be around in the end time. And after I did that, I did that rather quickly, but then I decided that I needed to link in for context because I thought a lot of Christians might not fully understand that this is a common story that's told all around the world. The flood story, the giants, the little people, everything that sort of goes into that whole mythos. And it's the same thing the ancient aliens mythos talks about as well. They're just talking about different levels of beings as opposed to how they classify them. And so I started to put that in, and then I realized I needed to add in the religious context because those cultures were essentially centered around their religion and the ruling class, which were the giants. And then I realized the mystery schools were connected and came out of the religion, and I learned later it was actually vice versa. But uh, then I learned about the secret societies that emanated out of the mystery schools, and then I needed to learn about secret societies because I knew nothing about secret societies, absolutely zero. And uh, mm. so I, I probably spent 10 or 12 years just on that rabbit hole of secret societies and you could just be there forever there's just so much information before i came out of it and that turned it in from about 10 chapters into 98 chapters so it became a very long book and i also took about 300 pages out of the book before sending it off to try and get published so it was quite a process and but along the way i got sort of smitten by the connection of the giants and that continuousing continuous uh effect on our history and that that mythos continues even to this day in terms of people who believe they're descended from those giants so that's that's kind of how i got here and i'm as i say uh, i've not uh, i did not have a university education and i did not go to seminary school so all of my research is my own research and then i thought you know there's some very interesting stuff here and maybe I can start communicating it to people and maybe connecting with some people to answer some questions. 
Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into this. I believe my audience is pretty well versed in the weird and initiated and pretty ready to get into some of the deeper stuff that this entails. And I think maybe a good place to start would be Genesis and some of the earliest writings that would indicate that we're dealing with not only giants, but possibly something supernatural that is affecting our perception and reality. So when we look at Genesis or even the book of Enoch, what were the things that really started to stand out for you and get your wheels turning? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I was looking at the aspect of the interrelationship between the angels and humans. And then the angels and the spirits offspring, the illegitimate offspring of a, of a God or an angel and a human female or a human male. Um, and I say that not because you get sort of biblical accounts of female goddesses mating with humans, but you get that in Sumerian mythology and you get that in, in the Greek history and mythology as well. And other places around the planet. So for example, uh, Gilgamesh was the offspring of Lugabanda, king of Uruk, uh, sixth generation after the flood, and a fertility goddess named Nin. So it's a common thing, and there's lots of examples in, in Greek mythology as well. So I was looking at that, and one of the interesting things that I found about the relationship was this passing on of angelic knowledge that wasn't permitted. And that just started to get my wheels sort of rolling. Well, how advanced were the antediluvians? Uh, and did this knowledge affect the early post-diluvian world before it kind of disappeared as well? And then you, I started to, you know, get into the idea of they're talking about building the pyramids. They're talking in the secret societies and things like that from the knowledge of the gods and the angels that have built all of their complete societies. And that if they had a, a knowledge that was that advanced, angelic technology, and you marry that up with an axiom out of the book of Ecclesiastics where it says nothing is due under the sun, what was will be again you start to get uh, an interesting sort of worldview and history view is, is are we seeing things for the first time or is this something that's repeating and how far did that technology advance? And if the end time is going to be like the days of Noah, then we better understand the complete days of Noah, both 600 years before the flood and 350 years after the flood, when giants and gods were walking amongst humankind, um, and that that may happen again. And if they had the ability to build things like the pyramids with in other megaliths around the world with sacred geometry, astrological alignments, uh, ratios, and relationships to the earth, 
Uh, and this was duplicated all around the world. And we can't build those structures today. How advanced was that technology? And are we just catching up to that? And so from a most sort of thought-provoking and, you know, and once you get by the giants, you kind of think like, okay, if you're prepared to accept that, could anything else shock you? And this did. Mm. And I was surprised now, most at that of, because... Now, I was going to say, so most of your theories are based on what is from the Bible itself, and you've obviously looked at plenty of other ancient texts and spiritual texts and scriptures, and you've come to the conclusion that what's in the Bible especially when it comes to Genesis in the Old Testament, is the most accurate telling of our spiritual history and relationship with what we would call angels and demons. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think it cuts through the propaganda aspect of it, if I, I can put it that way. Now, you, the do, there are some that believe that... that. There's some that believe that the the Bible has been altered, the Council of Nicaea, that yeah. it can't be the information can't be trusted, and the fact that it's not some of the oldest texts that we have that and some of the older texts also indicate that there are previous similarities to some of the stories in the Bible. So therefore, some researchers believe that the previous must be the the correct the correct telling. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's one of those things that people, if you, if you are a Christian, you need to find a way to come to terms with. And as a contrarian, I have to come to terms with that. So I think that uh, when we look at accounts that come from Sumeria or accounts that come from Greek or wherever around the world, they're telling from a macro level a story of the same events, but their lens has a different cultural biases to it. And it has a polytheist biases to it, just as the biblical account has a monotheist biases to it. And depending on whether or not which side of the fence you are, which one you might think are the good people, which ones are the evil people, which one is telling the truth, which one isn't. I, I obviously have made my decision that I think the Bible is more accurate um, because I think it calls things more out sort of more legitimately and gives us a, a, a good understanding. But as Christians, we ought not to dismiss the other accounts because it's worldwide. I mean, the flood story is worldwide. Building pyramids is, 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 is worldwide. Uh, giants is worldwide. There's this ancient legacy that's worldwide. And then we sort of understand that they're talking about the flood from, you know, a polytheist perspective, whether it's giant survival, giant recreation, human survival, human recreation. As you get down the various polytheist ones, you start to understand that it starts to make sense from their perspective, what they're talking about, because mm. most of the world was polytheist before the flood and then again after the yeah. flood. So that makes some sense. Now, from an older surviving manuscripts, so to speak, whether it's on fragments or stone tablets or, or, or scrolls or what have you, uh, that makes perfect sense that you would have older 
polytheist versions. And from a secular perspective, the Epic of Gilgamesh is kind of the oldest, best preserved story of the of the flood story. And it's preserved in a larger story of, of Gilgamesh. And so there's this sort of assumption then, because it's older than the Bible, that the Bible was maybe copied from that. And again, that makes sense from a sort of superficial uh, level or from 10,000 feet uh, from the macro level because it's talking about the same kinds of events, but the details are completely different. So you have a story in the Epic of Gilgamesh that is uh, a giant story versus a human story, uh, a Nephilim story. So... Gilgamesh is created after the flood. So he's like a second incursion. Enkidu is created after the flood. In the same way, giants are created in Genesis 6. But Apnapishtim, whom Gilgamesh seeks out, is an antediluvian giant. And he's two-thirds God, one-third human, just as Gilgamesh and Enkidu are. So is this whole family. And that's a story of a giant survival story. And Deucalion and Pyrrha, which is in which is the Greek version, and they call Deucalion the Greek Noah, he's son of Prometheus. Mm. So he's a giant as well. And so is his family. Yeah. So worldwide we get giant survival accounts and human survival accounts. And Genesis is clearly a human survival account. Now the age aspect mm. is is it has to be older as a surviving manuscript, anything that's in the Bible that would have any sort of accuracy or closeness to the time of the flood because the Torah does not come down to Israel until the time of Moses in about 1400 to 1450 BC. So it has to have uh, predecessors in terms of surviving stories, but there are surviving stories from different cultures not and different characters that are on those arcs or being recreated after the flood. And so there are, what I would look at it is, is that either uh, the polytheist accounts were sort of mythologies that came from wherever, or they're mm. accurately recording from their cultural and historic perspective, because they're all polytheist. They're accounting of what happened both before and then immediately after the flood. And then you have this sort of reckoning from a Christian or monotheist perspective is, is yes, those events are true, but this is what you need to know about it. I want to go to giants. I want to explore the aspects and your understanding of these giants or Nephilim. The, the common theme is that these are indeed spiritual entities that were created by fallen angels and it was the product of these angels mating with with human women is that correct 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 and in all accounts it's the same story so you have let's say in greek mythology um the definition of demigods is the offspring of a god or a goddess and a human male or a human female and then that is a word that sort of goes back into into prehistory and that you have for example zeus being the father of um hercules through alchemy so it's exactly the same story and that's a post-diluvian story 
which is similar to how giants probably show up again, at least in part, depending on how you view, they show them up after the flood with, with the Raphaim. So these were preternatural beings who had the had an ability to take a human form, and they could take any gender by deduction with the goddess and god aspect of the pantheon how do we know angels can take a bodily form because they're spiritual beings in the bible with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky no no nothing like that it's just these cash prizes add up quick so i suggest you sit back keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Um, and to interact physically in the physical world, you need a physical body. You may have limited interaction as a spiritual essence, but to take the full interaction, you need a physical body. So in the book... Of, now, are we uh, talking possession or just being incarnated at birth as this angel? Uh, just actually creating it. For, and I'll explain okay. that in a second, as opposed to okay. incarnation or avatar, avatara are two different concepts. So, uh, mm-hmm. But we can get into that. So... In, in the book of Genesis, in the Sodom story, and just before the two angels go to Sodom, you have three beings that take a physical form. One being the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-existent Jesus, Jehovah of the Elohim. And you have two angels. And they're not even recognized as preternatural beings at first, but then later recognized. So they look exactly like humans. And they eat. And they talk and they drink, and they touch, and they've created these bodies for themselves. And another class, I won't go through all the examples, but just to give a couple, and there's a New Testament for the New Testament. People say, well, what does the New Testament say about that? Is that in the book of Hebrews, we're told that we need to be good to strangers because you don't know when you're going to run into an angel. In other words, you won't be able to recognize them because they can take a physical bodily form and you wouldn't know the difference. And at Sodom, they want to have sex with these angels, Hmm. whether it was hetero or homosexual. And you can make a argument for either on that. And so what is required is something called a dwelling place for the spirit in the physical world to interact physically. And so in Jude 1.6, it talks about the angels that sinned, they left their habitation. And that's the Greek word oikotarian, and it means a dwelling place for the spirit. We get that word used one other time. There are associated words that are similar, but specifically for the dwelling place for the spirit, it's also used in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.2 for the house in heaven, another dwelling place. And so uh, a meaning for a dwelling place of the, the spirit, both in the, hev- the spiritual realm and you need one for the physical realm. 
And so they were, they created these dwelling places for their spirit so that they could pass on DNA so that they could procreate mm. the, to create these physical beings who had an immortal spirit passed on to them by an immortal being in at least in the first few generations they were immortal and so this is a concept that most people don't want to sort of cross over except that we get biblical accounts of them taking a physical form that makes it capable and they might rely on the book of matthew where it says you know in heaven there's no marriage well of course there's no marriage they're immortal beings and it's against the law in the physical realm uh, it may be against the law to do what they did and one of the reasons why they went to the abyss but they were able to do it but to procreate with physical beings they needed to have a physical form doesn't mean that they couldn't do other dna manipulation with technologies to do other things but to procreate they needed to to be able to 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 copulate and so this is a this is a concept that uh is once you start to understand how this works and then you can start to look at the difference between possessing and entering into a body as in the avatar avatar effect so giants when they lost their immortal spirit in Gen genesis 6 3 in the creation story of the giants between genesis 6 1 and 4 their life all life on earth in the physical realm is going to be limited to 120 years now the physical immortal spirit of the original nephilim and probably the the immortal raphaim if they're created after the flood is not going to die and it's a counterfeit spirit it's a reprobate spirit and it's not permitted into heaven and it's not permitted to sleep like humans so it's going to become when that body dies and that's what the age was put on is whether or not they were killed or uh, they died of just the body giving away uh, they became disembodied spirits and that they roam the earth so these are the ones that possess humans so they need to take over a human host suppress it in a hostile takeover to interact in the physical world because they want a place of rest and they want to be able to interact in the physical world again we get accounts of this in the new testament with jesus dealing with all sorts of devils unclean spirits and evil spirits as the king james virgin bible talks about and they're all talking about the same type of being and one even includes legion where you have met multiple of them uh, that can enter into a, a specific host and that word devil goes back to the Greek word daemon, which is the root word for demon in, in English and should probably be translated as a demon spirit, as opposed to devil that's used for Satan, which is diablos, a whole different word. Mm. Uh, and now diablos is, is the leader, the absolute leader of all angels and counterfeit spirits, including the demons. Now, when we're talking about the physical incarnation of giants, how giant are we talking? How large of beings were they? There's different different researchers have different accounts depending on yeah. the the information that they are basing this off of. So, what what would you think? How big are these beings? Well, it depends on a couple of things. One is is if we're talking about a giant after the flood or a giant the flood so giants mm. before the flood 
uh, had more capabilities and were seemingly quite a bit larger than the giants after the flood. So it's hard to now get let me reliable. Ask you, before you, is it because you think the atmosphere was different and everything may have been a little larger during the, at that time? Could that be possible? Well, if it was, and I, I don't think it was that different because we only had a flood. Um, mm -hmm. But if it was, then to be a giant, let's say the descendants of Adam were bigger, right? Then the giants would have mm -hmm. to be bigger still because they were giant in comparison to the humans. So it doesn't really matter. I don't think it was the case because Noah survives the flood and his three sons and their, and their daughters, and they're not giants. And there's not, and now Gnostics will depict them as giants, but that's, again, depending on maybe which side of the fence that you're on on that one. But their lineages recorded do not take them back to being giants. So, mm. so when we talk about the antediluvian giants, we get a couple of measurements in the book of Enoch from different translations. But the trouble is, is we don't have the original Hebrew of the full manuscript. So in the um, Aramaic version, which would be um, a height of what, what they would have listed as 300 cubits, which a cubit is a foot and a half, and or if it's a royal cubit, it would be 21 inches. So they're at least 600 feet tall. I would argue the larger sizing using 21 inches because they're mostly kings and royales. Um, but the Giaz version, which is kind of an older lineage that's it's connected to that's the ethiopian one that probably came down maybe in the time of solomon and that but it's the Giez version it's a longer version has a few more verses so i would recommend that one versus the aramaic version or the greek versions it uses the term else and the thought is is that the aramaic version that's that's translated is trying to come up with some sort of measurement because nobody knows what an l is so we don't know exactly what we know it's an ancient so it's it's got a historical record l but we don't know the measurement of it so it may be quite a bit less than a cubit we just don't know and i don't necessarily think the giants were four to five hundred feet tall before the flood maybe they were <laughs> but uh. you know when we look at the reliefs we see uh comparisons uh and these are antediluvian reliefs where you have humans you have giants and you have giant gods and they get bigger and sort of that proportionality would not bear out 500 feet tall but again we don't that's just we don't know how they were forming that sort of relationship to the size but that's kind of what they were recorded so typically giants are kind of thought and speculated on from a best you can put together is there's somewhere between 20 and 40 feet tall after or before the flood so still monstrous and yeah, that they are thought to have a two to one height to width ratio hmm. so what that means is is if they're 20 feet tall tall they might be 10 feet wide or very very wide or stout which is the term so these are monsters and they weren't gangly skinny beings there were muscular beings there were fleet of foot as the greek mythology talks about ambidextrous the ultimate warriors um, and uh, were easily able to overpower 
humans. After the flood, we get some more dimensions in a few different accounts. And we get accounts, uh, for example, in the Bible where Goliath is six cubits and a span. Now, he's, going, he's the king of Gath. So, And as Josephus talks about, you measure the, the, the post-Diluvian giants on the royal cubit because there were kings there, so 21 inches. So, But if it was a foot and a half, just for sake of argument, he would be, um, you know, somewhere from uh, nine feet, nine inches using um, a standard cubit or as high as 11 feet, three inches using a royal cubit. And again, mm -hmm. thought to be stout. So he would be somewhere around, you know, let's go four or five feet wide. <laughs> So still quite monstrous, twice the size and 50% wider than humans and more. And yeah. so we get another measurement from King Og from his bed. And his bed was kept on display at Rabbah after the Exodus just to show people the giants that they were talking about. And so his bed was iron because it wouldn't hold his weight uh, if you made it out of, of wood. So his bed was um, nine cubits uh, long and four cubits wide so that's going to be about 16 feet long and it's going to be seven wow. feet wide so he's going to be 12 to 15 feet tall depending on where you want to place that for a height and his width is going to be probably four to five feet wide as well so you're starting to see a consistency and that was that nine to four is that two to one height Height to width ratio, not quite exact, but slightly under that I referenced to before, so that people would understand that these were muscular, wide, powerful beings. Now, out of the Ugaritic text and out of the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh text, and they used the same dimensions, and there was a relationship between the Ugarit and the Sumerian um, civilizations after the flood, they measured Gilgamesh who's a dark-haired giant, which is different than most of the ones in, in the middle, in, in the covenant land. And there's different hair colors, but that's something we can talk about later. He was uh, documented in several different manuscripts as being 11 cubits tall and four cubits wide. So he's the king of Rook, son of Lugalbanda, uh, meaning Lugal meaning giant king um and that would put him about 19 feet tall as a royal as a royal cubit and seven feet wide so this is the largest accounting you know that we get but we get greek accounts of discoveries coming out of history of 12 14 15 feet tall was kind of in that normal range of the um post-alluvian giants um, so like Achilles would be in that range, for example, just as one quick example. I think he was 12 to 13 feet tall. Some people say as high as 14. Uh, so in the King Og range is where I would put him. Now, you mentioned that these were called the Raphaim, the post-flood giants. Is that right? Yeah. So when we talk about the word Nephilim, it shows up three times in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Once in Genesis 6-4, for the creation of the giants before the flood. 
twice in Numbers 13.33, when it's talking about the Anakim that it says are the children of giants, twice they call them giants, that's the word Nephilim. Um, the Anakim in the book of Deuteronomy, let me just back up a step. So that's the embellished part of the report. So the Israelite scouts who don't want to enter into the covenant land, this is the time of the Exodus, are trying to scare the Israelites from not going in. So they're referencing the Nephilim, and that sort of underscores the veracity that Nephilim before the flood were understood as larger, bigger, because they didn't use the word Raphaim. Uh, and we know the Anakim are Raphaim because they're described as such elsewhere in the Bible. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 2, and it's describing certain giants like the Horim or the Emim, for example, and, and as well as the Anakim, that word giant goes back to the word Rapha. And the male plural is Raphaim. I am is the male plural. And uh, it's also the root uh, for the word that and there's three words that are associated actually four but only cover three because one is just the names of kings um you have giant which is 7497 7496 is for evil spirit demon shade shad as it's known in hebrew and then healer um and in the ugaritic text after the flood these rapiu or rapium which is the rpm which is the semitic root word for raphaim were created by Baal and Ashtaroth, offspring gods of the parent god El, who would have ruled before the flood, went to the abyss. Baal takes over, and this happens as a constant in all the pantheons. So Zeus takes over from Kronos. Enlil and Anki take over from Anu. Osiris takes over in Egypt. These are post-diluvian gods versus the anti-diluvian gods, parent gods versus offspring gods. And they create the giants. And in the Ugaritic text, they're doing rituals to bring them back because they're gone for some reason, not explained. I think the reason is, is they went to the abyss for the same reasons their parents did <laughs> um, for creating giants and violating the laws of creation. But nonetheless, these Rapiu, Rapiyam, Raphaim are called saviors, and they're also called um, healers as well as giants and kings. And it's thought that the Raphaim and thus the Nephilim before them had an ability to repair themselves. But these are, and they're doing fertility rituals to bring Baal Nashral back because the Raphaim somehow have a fertility issue after the flood. And they need, they want them to reproduce more Raphaim because they're dwindling in numbers. And later they're going to have to intermarry with humans because of that issue. So Ugarit is... I think comes from the word erit, uh, in short for eritim, for the terrible ones, as they're called in Ezekiel 32 and Ezekiel and Isaiah 14, for example. And these are the terrible kings and Raphaim kings who did horrible things, both before the flood, which would have been the Nephilim and the Raphaim after the flood, that when they were slain, they went to the sides of the abyss prison, as opposed to just wandering the earth. And... That word erit is defined in Hebrew as, you know, terms that would describe a giant and a giant king, but also childless and infertility. And so where that starts to connect now is Ugarit has that second syllable coming from erit. And Hebrew comes out of Semitic, so it starts to make some sense. Now, UG 
is um, thought to be King Og. And Og, as you take that back to Hebrew, is O-W-G, rooted in U-W-G, as we have it in Hebrew, meaning Ug, and the W is kind of silent, um, and meaning round and stout. And so it's the city of Og, uh, were these Raphaim kings, and King Og was the last of the Raphaim, as he's depicted as being the original Raphaim after the flood and being killed in in a first-generation Raphaim uh, in the time of the Exodus. And he moves to Mount Hermon after the giant wars where Raphaim tribe is listed in the giant wars in Genesis 14 and then also listed in Genesis 15 as people living in the land that is being promised to Abraham. So those are sort of some of the uh, accountings, both biblically and aligned biblically, about as aligned as you can get with the Ugaritic text to the Raphaim being created after the flood, and that these seem to be the post-Diluvian giants before the anti-Diluvian giants, because we don't get any, at least from a biblical perspective, we don't get the word Nephilim used for giants after the flood as legitimate beings. We only get them conflated with Raphaim to scare the Israelites. As far as the accounts of the descriptions of these beings, you mentioned the hair color. A lot of previous descriptions that I've heard include red hair and a different amount of fingers on each hand, possibly six fingers. Is this something that you've discovered as well? Absolutely, there's a there's a connection there. I would first of all note that the six-fingered and six-toed giants, as mentioned in the Bible and as mentioned in uh, Josephus, are also associated with giants that have uh, an additional row of teeth and into some of the archaeological mm. discoveries that were made in North America of some of these red-haired giants. But they seem to be, those ones seem to be not as common. So they might be a different branch with those digits and extra row of teeth. Um, because with the other giants we that are just described in the Bible and elsewhere, we don't really get that type of description. So there, there might be a variation there. But the hair color of the giants, um, both before and after the flood, seem to be similar. So in both accounts, you get a red-haired, hazel-eyed, pale skin variety and a blonde hair blue-eyed pale skin variety so this shows up uh, in atlantis for example as the description of these giants and then we get those descriptions again with indo-aryans and tuathadudanan and the datanu as they're called in the ugaritic text after the flood and what's also interesting biblically how we get something that lines up with that is, is you have the Amorites, who are a hybrid offspring uh, of the Raphaim, of the Anakim, who are described, both are described as blonde hair and pale skin, whereas the Horim and associated tribes with them are red hair and pale skin. Now, the dark-haired variety, typically after the flood, is associated with one of the groups of the four Indo-Aryans, but the Aryans in particular that are... Um, associated with Persia and with parts of Greece. And so these dark-haired ones are uh, like the bloodlines for the Achaemenid kings or the kings of Persia who take their genealogies back to Greece and back to those dark-haired 
uh, giants. Now, where that sort of gets rooted is, is... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It seems to come from the kind of angel that is producing these, these giants. So when you have a lion that is associated with the dark-haired ones, uh, like Arioch, which means lion-like, out of Mesopotamia, or the lion men of Moab, or the lion men of Gad in the Bible, and the Ermalu in Sumeria, and there's these names of these lion-like warriors all over the place, is you get a lion face off of one of the watchers called a cherubim. And a cherubim actually has four faces. It has an eagle or a bird face, it has an ox face, it has a lion face, and also has a human face. So depending what form they're going to take on Earth in that DNA, that changeling capability that they have, that's the DNA that's going to get passed on. So that if they took the form of a lion, they would make create these lion gods. If they took the form of a bird, like they do with the Anunnaki with that head, but you get other reliefs where they have a human head, they would create offspring that would look like that. So you would create like the Zabalba of the Popol Vuh or the Tengu, which were bird face gods, and the Kamazots were Batman basically is based on in terms of his look and superheroes. And so if the Trubum formed as a human, as are shown as Anunnaki in Sumeria, they would have created dark-haired ones. The Seraphim, which were fiery serpent-faced angels with six wings, they're angelic dra uh, dragons, are the ones who produced the uh, blonde-haired and red-haired, blue-eyed and hazel-eyed giants. So it seems to go back to the kind of angel that was able to take a physical form that passed on that DNA. And that, that serpentine look went with the blonde-haired and red-haired variety where they didn't go with the dark-haired variety. And so the early kings after the flood and the kings before the flood, just like the gods with the ruling class, were described as serpents or dragons. So you have dragon creator mm -hmm. gods in China. You have the, the uh, feathered and plumed serpents like Quetzalcoatl and other gods of the same, likely the same order of gods that uh, produced offspring throughout Central and South America. Osiris is depicted as a god. Enlil is depicted er, as a serpent. Enlil, uh, Tiamat. Uh, and I'm just going through different sort of pantheons here. Kronos uh, and Zeus were all pictured as serpents originally as well. And so they produce kings who are also have this look of the serpentine look. So you get images in Sumeria of kings. You get images in the Ugarit on, and around the world where you have these elongated skulls and serpentine-looking um, kings early on because they look just mm. like their procreators. 
Uh, but once they, after the flood, once they had to start to reproduce with humans to survive and not become extinct, that starts to become diluted. So now if you want to, if people want to Google a picture of Akhenaten, and I would say do a few of them, you get a very interesting look. This is over a thousand years after the flood with diluted bloodlines to survive with humans. Mm -hmm. You still have this long protruding chin. This, these high cheekbones, these thin lips, these large wraparound eyes that um, would light up and, and glow, make a room light up because they were called the shining ones as well throughout the world. And this huge elongated skull that has no sutures. And sometimes he's depicted Egyptian busts will show them with a hat on, which will cover that head. Um, and sometimes they show the skull just being sort of elongated. And then they wore this cobra headdressing because they were representing their gods, right? Mm -hmm. That gave them the authority to rule. They were both before and after the flood were given by the pantheon of gods, the divine right to rule. So they would emulate them as well. So that's the description. And if you look at uh, Akhenaten, he looks like a serpent face. That's and interesting. That's, that could also connect to a lot of the reptilian extraterrestrial lore that we hear about today. Possibly, but I would say that there's two different levels of that reptilian in that alien mythos or in the occult mythos. So the Nephilim mm -hmm. would be, and the Raphaim would be at the highest level of the physical world creations versus the spiritual ones, which are the invisible ones and have a higher level in the hierarchy. So even though the Nephilim had this reptilian, there's another reptilian within that hierarchy. So when we talked about the little people, that's the elementals. And there's four categories of the elementals. And I was talking about three of them. The fourth one is called a salamander. And it is taller and it is actually taller than a human not like a giant, but taller than a human. And it tends to sort of live in the earth and in the tunnels where that mythos of the reptilian seems to be also connected with. So I would say there's two possibilities to that reptilian mythos within the alien mythos as sort of part of that nomenclature. And who knows, mm -hmm. that reptilian might be the original serpent or Nahash, as it's called in the Bible. If the angels had the ability to save giants and create giants um, through their free will in the physical world for a certain period of time, maybe they saved some of the original serpent that deceived Eve and Adam. And that was a being that was taller than humans by Gnostic accounts, as tall as a camel. Um, and it was serpentine. It, some had wings, some had arms. It was an intelligent being. And it was at the of physical creation at the top of the food chain, so to speak, intellectually, until Adam was created, and which is why he was. They were more easily coerced into deceiving Adam. This is all polytheist accounts. This has got nothing to do with the Bible. Mm. But what we do know is, is the hash biblically, they were changed. They lost their arms. They lost their legs. 
They lost if wings if they had that. They lost their intelligence and they lost their ability to speak and they're forced to crawl on the ground for deceiving Eve. And that did not happen to Satan. So you can't say it was Satan because he wasn't punished. Or maybe Satan influenced them or maybe Satan did what is called the avatar-avatara effect, which comes out of Hinduism where a god will enter into a human or a being and provide additional power and intelligence just as vishnu in hinduism he incarnated something like 18 times shiva like a dozen times and mm-hmm. it's vishnu who incarnated into buddha to give him that knowledge and incarnated after this being was born and we get biblically that this can happen because Satan in the time of Jesus actually enters into Judas to give him the courage to complete the betrayal of Jesus to go through with it. So it's possible that Satan may have done the same thing with the Nahash or the serpent to give them the additional wisdom and additional sort of courage to go through with bringing down Adam and Eve. Let's let's skip a little forward through time to the agendas that are at play now, to the, the powerful groups that control our perception. How do we get from these Nephilim giants and Raphaim beings to the formation of secret societies that in turn have a global grasp on on religions and and theologies across the world and and form a control system that we see today which is now reached a whole new level of what is playing out which we'll get into but how do we go from giants to secret societies basically one of the uh, more surprising things i learned as i was doing the research for the first book is that mm-hmm. once I got into the mystery schools, I learned that that was where secret societies were created. So the mystical religion was created by um, Enoch, son of Cain. Uh, and this is this according to the Gnostics, and this according to the Masonic organizations, this is their history, that Adam passed on all of the knowledge he learned to, to Cain, who was ostracized and then goes to Nod and gets a wife, has a son named Enoch and passes all of that knowledge. Adam was taught to run this massive facility from Nile to the Euphrates with all of these different animals, uh, both um, and, and most of them, you know, a lot of them would be sort of agrarian or, you know, like cattle, stuff like that, plus all the orchards and all of the crops that are talked about there uh, all by himself. Then he gets one single partner and he's running this. So there's this implied knowledge that would have to be provided to Adam to be able to manage all of this by himself. This knowledge is passed on to Enoch, who takes that knowledge and continues to develop it, but splits it into the seven sacred sciences that we know as the seven liberal arts today. And that this knowledge is going to, is going to merge with the knowledge from the fallen angels and the gods in polytheist religions, and it's going to explode to a significant level. And Enoch creates the mystical sun-worshipping and bull cult religion before the flood to house this powerful knowledge because they don't want it going to the Sethites and people that they're kind of enemies with and not loyal to the pantheon of, of God. 
or pantheon of gods versus the God of the Bible. So they developed this knowledge into and taught to only the elite and only to the initiated into this religion that dominates the organizational structure before the flood. And they combines with this angelic knowledge. And once the Nephilim kings are created in Genesis 6, they take over the world. They have the religion. They have the uh, the, the size and the weaponry that's given to them by Azazel. And, and they, they take over government government both before and after the flood. So that's the rise. Now, it's interesting that Freemasonry takes their patriarch back to their beginning to Enoch. He's their greatest patriarch. Other ones that are listed as great patriarchs are in this renaissance in the age of Lamech of the lineage of Cain. Just as there's a Lamech in the Jared or in the Seth line, and there's also an Enoch in the Seth line. So there's two of each, and their names are very, very similar. So you have to be careful not to conflate them, although a lot of accounts, particularly in polytheism, will conflate the two Enochs. So those four are Jubal, Jabal, Nama, and Tubal Cain all great patriarchs of masonry uh, and venerated even to this day. But along comes the flood. And so they're going to prepare this knowledge and it's prepared into uh, 336,525 um, books of uh, knowledge that Enoch creates or probably authorized to be created and written down, stored in nine vaults stacked on top of each other and stored under the Great Pyramid. Mm. not biblical records, Masonic mm. records from the Polychronicon. Mm. After the flood, Hermes finds one of the pillars that they put the directions on to find this knowledge, because they did one for fire or one that, that wouldn't be just you know, destroyed by an apocalypse of fire and one that could float wouldn't be destroyed by an apocalypse of water. So obviously he finds the one that floated, gets the directions, gets this knowledge, takes it back to Nimrod, and he becomes the first grand master after the flood. And he initiates a thousand into his uh, Masonic organization. They start to build Babel City and Babel Tower with this knowledge and uh, threatening to be able to go into heaven. We get a reflection of how powerful this knowledge might be in the Akkadian version, where it doesn't look at Babel as meaning confusion of languages. It translates... Uh, as Babalu or Bab L E L E L and I L U are the same transliterated word just as A L is for a god or an angel, and Bab as a gateway. So this was a stargate or a portal into other dimensions. So there's no way he could build a tower up to heaven. He would have to have some sort of portal to create an access. So he's either going to go use that Babel Tower to go into heaven and, and kill God, or he's going to try, or might even be both, or he might even go into another dimension into the other world uh, where the abyss is located in another dimension to free the uh, gods that were imprisoned there. May have had two purposes for it, but there's this great knowledge. Anyways, he becomes the first... Grandmaster after the flood and writes the first constitution. So this is how old it goes. And, you know, it's revised in Heliopolis and it's passed down through the Pythagorean mystery schools. And you get these organizations that are all over the world because you have secret societies throughout China, throughout all of the ancient world. They're all royal 
Um, kings of God, E-L, A-L, same transliteration that we're talking about. Roy goes back to king, both in Old French and back to regal and uh, rule in Indo-Aryan and Latin. Um, and they control these Masonic bloodline secret societies that are being passed down through the world. Now, you roll, roll forward to the time of the Templars. You have three important ones. They are de Bouillon, de Payon, and Anjou, who are descendants of the Merovingians, who claim descendancy uh, as the most noble bloodline back to the giants. And they form, these three form with others, the Knight Templar, uh, including Henry de St. Clair, who's one of the non-mentioned ones, but inside the craft writings, he's one of the original founders. And he's from the Rollo bloodline um, that uh, invaded northern France and in 910 to 911 um, expropriated Normandy from the French with the Treaty of St. Clair. So they changed their name to the treaty name, and that's the St. Clair or the Sinclairs that are going to pop up and be uh, sort of famous for starting Freemasonry after the fall of the Knights Templar. So in 1307, the Knights Templar organization that Anjou de Bouillon and de Payon formed and other nobility is taken down, but it, you get... Uh, a movement after the fall to set up secret societies that aren't centralized and so easily taken down by the Roman church. So you're going to see the Templars split off into Freemasonry, which is the first visible one, but the Rosicrucians or the Rosy Cross order actually start to take shape in 1188 with the cutting of the elm and the splitting away of the senior organization of the Knights Templar, um, which is the royal bloodlines from the order that's created at Baldwin II in 1118, which creates the lower order of the Templars. And so you have like these barons that are talked about in William of Tyr. This is the inner order of the Priory of Sion that is at the upper level. And then you've got uh, still bloodline members as adepts as the Templars, but they're answering to the senior order. They split in 1188 because the Templars lost Jerusalem in 1187. And so the senior organization felt they lost their way and they're too, too much um, concerned with banking because they became sort of the, the origination of Western banking. The Templars created the check and credit facilities and all sorts of things that um, are used to this day and were the most powerful military organization. So when the Templars were taken down, you have the Rosy Cross Order, which is going to sort of spread upwards to as, as it uh, develops, and then downwards. So it's kind of like the intersection in the philomic tree, as they call it, between the pure bloods and the lower levels uh, of lower level bloodlines. You have to be invited. So you have uh, Freemasonry at the bottom, that was created by the Sinclairs and then formalized into, in 1323, uh, the visible Rosy Cross order for the adepts of the Templars. And then you have the Illuminati that is above Freemasonry that is created in about 1500s, visibly coming out and people saying merging with Freemasonry in about 1776. They are a higher level of adept. Um, and I can get into that in a minute, and they said above the Freemasons, and then it's the Rosicrucians, and 
Freemasonry is the introductory level where they're going and looking for lower level bloodlines and getting them re-initiated back into their belief system. And the Rosicrucians at the bottom level may, are made up of those lower level bloodlines rising up and then the, the pure bloods are at the top. Above the pure bloods are the committee of 300 families, um, which are created um, as an extension out of the invisible ones of the Council of 33, which is in existence in the time of the fall of the Templars. And these, this is the inner order of families. And so as it grows, they they split away from the Rosy Cross as being more visible, lower. And then you have the 300 families as the families are, are expanded into that organization into Europe. And then it's the 13 families at the top. Now, all the other organizational structures that they set up, and they call it like an evergreen tree, like a cedar of Mount, uh, of Mount Hermon, which was used to describe the giants because of the size, right? Like the Amorites were like the cedars of Lebanon. And the evergreen describes immortality and the roots go down into Hades where they get their authority and power from. Just like the elm tree is the genealogical tree of the bloodlines that they came up with their concept. Both are called world trees. Both are also called thalamic trees, which they get biblically from a Greek word. And you have let's say let's just talk about let's say the committee of 300 for example it has branch organizations and within that branch is different hierarchies and they all report to the trunk organization so organizations that would branch into that would be like the Bilderbergers, the club of yeah. rome uh mm -hmm. the imf the world bank anything to do with the economic globalization uh the davos crew would go right into there um, and so if you can imagine those free branches being controlled at the center by these trunk organizations, you start to get the organizational structure and how big this organization is and that they've had millennia to establish it. Now, as far as the bloodlines, do you think that there are still not necessarily pure blood, but still very large humans that are a part of the bloodline that may not be known to the general public? There may be. Um, it's a possibility. I mean, we don't get a lot of accounts. Uh, I think we might mm -hmm. see giants as we get closer to the end, but that might be a recreation or coming out of stasis from the technology that they might have had. That's my speculation. The only really sound account that I would say that we have on and that why I leave a possibility open that there's still a, some still around was there's an interview on Coast to Coast with Steve Quayle um, about uh, an incident in Afghanistan and they had a pilot there. Yeah, other... the, the Kandahar giant. Yeah. And if, yeah. You, if you listen and read those transcripts, the details of the giants is extraordinary in terms of the accuracy mm -hmm. uh, of, of the minute details and the smell and the size and the proportions and how difficult they were to kill and how fleet of foot and ambidextrous and things like that. And then the military aspect of it was all there. So it was either an extraordinary hoax where this individual was provided all of the information to memorize like an actor or it's true. 
it's, and there's nothing really in between for me. And I, I think it might, it may, it may be true, but that's about the only thing that I could lean to. What we do know is, is that there are descendants or at least people who believe they are descendants of the giants. And that's the complete nobility class around the world and the Royals mm. and that, uh, they take they keep their genealogies that they track back to Raphaim and Nephilim patriarchs and then back to specific gods or angels. So let's just talk about King Charles the Third for a second, who comes from the Hanover bloodline, which has double unicorns and also has some intermarriage with the uh, Stuart bloodline as well and also Anjou connections but that's the ennobling of the bloodline right that's where they add other pure bloodlines to give them a higher level within this hierarchy but they also have to keep intermarrying with lower level bloodlines to prevent the blood diseases you know like hemoph mm. hemophiliac disease or Habsburg jaw disease things like that so there's that balance and it dilutes even more over time which is why they're not as tall um, but typically, you know, even in the time of uh, the kings of Jerusalem that we talked about through the Templars, they were taller and wider than, as they're described in the in, in William of Tyr, than other people because they're of those bloodlines. And typically they were blonde hair and blue eyed from the Anjou bloodline. And so, right. yeah, again, these connections just sort of keep re sort of resurfacing. So King Charles III keeps his genealogies because that's where he fits in the hierarchy and he would be considered by some as an antichrist candidate if we're actually, uh, you know, in the end time. There are other rivals, but he takes his genealogies not only back to the Hanovers, not only back to the Stuarts, but to Vlad the Impaler, who Dracula is based on, which means son of a dragon, son of a seraphim. <laughs> Uh, watcher was the definition for uh, Draconta in Greek. Um, and he is, uh, the character Dracula is based on who drank blood for him, you know, immortality as a vampire, just as Nephilim and Raphaim were trying to drink blood to do the same thing and also to add more cognizant capabilities. And he is red-haired, hazel-eyed, pale-skinned, and has an allergy to sunlight. Uh, so <laughs> there's, and then he gets the cobra teeth <laughs> to, yeah, to, to, to bite with. And he's the enemy of Christianity. I mean, the allegory is crazy. Now, Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, son of a dragon, um, takes his took, takes his geneal genealogies back to the Egrithi tribe of Scythians who were produced by Hercules, son of Zeus. That's just one example of how they track their genealogies. That is and so, so interesting. whether or not that's true or not, it's not really important. What's important is they believe it. And then it's what they mm. do with that belief system. So uh, I think there's a high degree that it's, it's likely that, that, that it is true, or at least they track their genealogies uh, back that way. But it is, it is just part of that whole culture. And so, well, speaking they... speaking of their belief system, we've got a few minutes left, and I'd love to spend it on your 
insights and thoughts on is there an in-game agenda at play? If so, what is it? There are some very obvious agendas at play that I see. Uh, definite depopulation, a an enslavement, a uh, global enslavement type credit, social credit, technocratic system that that is being attempted to be implemented right now, but what else do you see as a bigger picture, as a more spiritual agenda that's at play here? Yeah. So it begins with uh, the angelic rebellion. And the Adamites were created as the resolution for the angelic rebellion. And so everything that the angels did after the creation of Adam was to prevent humankind from reaching their destiny to be raised up like angels and to be the inheritors of eternity and actually judge the fallen angels for their crimes. And so that's why you see the first revenge in Eden. That's why you see the creation of the giants. The creation of the giants as their spirits offering offspring were to wipe the Adamites from the face of the planet and replace them under the realm of the fallen angels and that they would want to win a realm of their own. And so this battle has been going on over and over and over and over. And they get very, very close just before God brings on the flood for a restart because there's something called the book of life that was created from before creation where it has all sentient beings that would be created will have a choice to leave their name in that book of life or have it blotted out this is from a biblical perspective and so that has to have time to play out so that all those names have that opportunity and are judged in in the same manner to choose god or not and so nimrod and babel is just a restart of that whole rebellion again where he is an antichrist type figure with a universal religion that is leading humankind away from god and to rebel and if successful all humankind would be obliterated and remembered no more that's what the intent is to do and so when israel is created the giants unite against them to wipe them from the face of the earth and to inherit their blessings. The Magianic blessing of the Antichrist, what they would call the dragon messiah. Um, the, uh, the birthrights and the inheritance of the earth. They would want to take that. And so when you have the Amalekites, for example, which are the offspring of Eliphaz, son of Esau, brother of Jacob, who Jacob takes all three blessings away from him, he feels he's been hard done by, and his descendants feel he's been hard done by. And if they wipe Israel from the face of the earth, when they leave Egypt as just a ragtag group of slaves, they will inherit all of those blessings. And that Eliphaz marries a, a female giant named Timna, who's a whore in Genesis 36. And they produce this fairy uh, bloodline and kingship as this hybrid human Raphaim bloodline that becomes the Elephs or the Elven King bloodline, the Magianic bloodline of the Gnostics that is the, part of their mythos and the Dragon Messiah bloodlines that they want to present. There's rivals to this all around the world to who will be Antichrist. 
So you have this thing that's going on throughout our history, through all of the beast empires and happens, are all trying to accomplish the same thing. And so in the end time, which all of this comes to a conclusion, it is to make that stand against God because they tell their followers that Satan is the equal of God, but you're going to have to fight for your realm just as Satan in Isaiah 14 wanted to have a realm of their own and to be be like God, that's what they want. So in all of the allegories in the entertainment, whether it's Doctor Strange, you have this earth that is that realm. They're trying to win it from the evil lord of the universe, which is the God of the Bible, as, the, as their inverse um, allegory would go from a Christian perspective. And so, and you have that polytheist magical religion that's part of that all the time. Star Wars has the same allegory that's built into it, for example. And so... In the end time, they want to make that stand and win that realm and wipe the, the, the humans from the face of the earth and replace it with just a limited population of the descendants or recreated giants in the end time. So they want that rendezvous with destiny. So that comes about by ha having a universal religion, which they had in all the beast empires past. When I talk about beast empires, that's a Egypt, Assyria, uh, Persia, Greece, um mm. rome the seventh empire that's coming then the one that anti antichrist takes over as the eighth empire at the midpoint of the last seven years when the rebellion and uh, the war in heaven takes place and antichrist like nimrod tried to do in daniel 8 10 will actually enter into heaven with the technology that we're currently developing i think and bring down some of the some of the starry host in that battle and trample on them and so that's at that is what is at play. Something happened though along the road to um, the Colosseum, so to speak. Um, the angels did not anticipate the resurrection. They knew they had to try and prevent the Messiah from coming. They knew that God had a plan that was all worked in to play out through free choice over time. And they tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, tried to prevent him that from being born, tried to, and then ended up killing him and crucifying him with the help of the Romans and, and the Jewish Pharisees um, at the crucifixion. What's interesting is the book of Corinthians talks about, is this one interesting line, is had those fallen angels, the archons, um, known of the resurrection, they would not have ensure jesus was crucified after that their fate was sealed that's where jesus is in the grave he goes in first peter to the abyss and he tells them the rebellion is over and all you can do now is just reap as much destruction as you can but things are going to play out and you're going to be going to the lake of fire so from a christian perspective the polytheists who continue to follow are being deceived that they can actually win from a polytheist perspective is is they believe monotheists have been deceived. And if you want to join eternity in the new age, in the new millennium, then you're going to have to convert to this universal religion and follow the dragon messiah. So depending on which side of the fence you're on is how you're going to look at that. But that's what's at play. It's this conspiracy to bring this up to a full head. And in from a monotheist perspective is the attempt to wipe humankind from existence. 
We are definitely in incredible times. Do you have hope that with the amount of people that are awakening to the evil and corruption and not participating with the nefarious agendas that we may have a chance to to change the course that we are headed right now? I think there's always a chance to delay it. Uh, I think we get that example uh, in with the time of Israel where I mean, you look at how many times they backslid and violated the covenant and could have had the curses of the covenant applied at any point in time, but they would repent and they would push things forward, right? Um, that they would be able to continue. Um, and had they fulfilled the covenant, we would have had a different sort of history that was been fulfilled through the blessings of the covenant, but we're having it done through the curses of the covenant. It still has the same and time because God is greater than free choice. But the best we can do is try and delay it because there is an ordained time and antichrist will not be permitted to come until that ordained time. And I think it's got a lot to do with the names in the book of life as well, as you sort of connect that as to how that's going to work out. So we can, we can probably delay it for a certain amount of time or God will help us delay it for a certain amount of time. Maybe that's a better way of saying it uh, because they're always trying to bring this about. They've been trying to do it since Nimrod, since before the flood. So you can expect an antichrist figure was probably amongst the giants before the flood. Um, because nothing is new under the sun. Now, that, what will you be will focusing? Be and the and the beast empires have antichrist figures. So whether or not it's Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or Alexander of Greece, or pick uh, whomever you want in terms of the Roman Empire, probably Julius Caesar or Nero might be uh, ones that people would pick for an antichrist figure. They all have that polytheist Babel religion. And the Babylon religion, Babylon is rooted in the word Babel. <laughs> so it's the Babylon religion that was at Babel that's coming in the end time. That was the religion of the beast empires. And that is going to be coming to play. And that's why you see not only a world government movement, but movements from all kinds of religions to try and how do we bring down barriers? How do we compromise? How do we come to some sort of universal religion? I think both will take catastrophes. The Davos crew can do everything they want. All the money in the world can do anything that they want, but to get done what they want to get done, world government under one world religion, mm -hmm. That's going to take something preternatural. That's going to take catastrophes that are going to cattle herd people into it. So they can do all the prep work they want, but there's an ordained time and it won't happen until the ordained time. But they will continue to double down and try and bring it about before the ordained time because they would just love to be able to point to God as not being the omnipotent God of the universe. This is incredible, Gary. Great stuff. Now, what will you be focusing on in the next book, the upcoming? Yeah, so, you know, I said I would never, I would never write a sequel to the Genesis 6 conspiracy, and, <laughs> but I did, and I stopped writing another book to do it. Uh, I was convinced by people who contact me, questions on shows, that they wanted more information that, that was actually in the Bible. And... They wanted to go deep 
into the Bible. And for me, one of the things that's also important in what I was hearing is quite regularly is, is how does prehistory apply to prophecy? Well, it provides all the context um, and it provides answers and definitions to a, a lot of the allegories. So this book is called Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2. And the subtitle is, is how understanding prehistory and giants helps to define end time prophecy. So I go deep into uh, the Bible on this one. And I do use outside sources like the Ugaritic texts. I'll use uh, quite a bit because there's a lot of parallel. I'll, I will bring in things, but it's designed to get people to understand like who the Philistines were or who, um, you know, the Raphaim were from a polytheist perspective, but it's, it's it's uh, heavily focused on the Bible and other information that just sort of brings some context. And I walk through all the different giant names that are listed for tribes in the Old Testament, and there's a lot. I list all of the what I call the hybrids that uh, are important in, in the Bible, and starting with the Canaanites, because... In Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles, you have the 70 patriarchs to rule after the flood. And nine of those aren't listed. Nine of them are part of the 12 Canaanites. So you have Canaan, Seth, not Seth, Heth, and uh, Sidon. And then you have the Amorites, you have the Jebusites, you have the other nine who don't have a patriarch. They're patriarchs, as I call them. That's because the Bible doesn't list Raphaim as patriarchs. And we get a couple examples of that. We don't get Rapha for the Raphaim is listed as a patriarch. We don't get Arba, who's the patriarch of the Anakim, listed in the Table of Nations. So I'll take those tribes back to the likely name of the Raphaim patriarch who created that hybrid branch. So cover off all the giant nations and nations like the Maka theme that people haven't heard, maybe all that familiar with to the obvious ones like the Anakim or the Horim. Uh, and I will then sort of move into the angelic hierarchy and into the assembly of the gods that's talked about in, in Psalms 82 and Deuteronomy 32 and create the scenario of how, of the understanding of the world being run by visible ones and the invisible ones mm. and the hierarchy of the invisible ones. And I'll actually establish what I think is a, a better hierarchy than the standard hierarchy of angels and name all of the orders and put them into a specific order. And then I'll move into um, the giant wars. So I'll cover off all of the, wars of genesis 14 all of the exodus wars break it down into like the battle of atheronim the battle of Rephidim, the eastern campaign the central campaign the northern campaign the mountain campaign and southern campaign and then i'll do the wars of the giants in the judges and take that all the way through to king solomon and then i'll start to transition with all of the terms and things that i've been explaining to lay down uh, those terms as it fits into end time prophecy and lay down a chronology. And in the preface, I actually give my sort of 10 major points I use for a guideline in terms of understanding prophecy that takes out the contradictions. Excellent. Excellent, Gary. Can't wait for that. We'll definitely have to have you back on after that one comes out. Before you go, let the audience know where they can get your books, your website, and wherever else you can find your content. Absolutely. So 
Uh, the new book will be available in the same uh, outlets as well. So the best way to get a hold of me or my book is through my website. That's, that is the genesis6conspiracy.com with the number 6conspiracy.com. Uh, and uh, on that website, there's actually for the first book and there will be for the second book. Uh, the first book has 98 chapters and you get a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. So if you like some of the things that I talked about today, you'll get a better feel for the book and see whether it's for you. If you wanted to buy that book or the future book that will be coming out late August, early September off that website, there's a buy now page. And so if you live in the U.S., there's a U.S. page. If you live overseas, there's an overseas page. If you live in Canada, there's a Canada page. From that, that's where you get the signed copy from me. If you wanted to link over to barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, or amazon.ca, or the Kindle version, you can link over there to the purchase page of that book on those sites. book is also available on most online bookstores, um, and we'll... And so will the, uh, the the new book when it comes out. And if you want to get a hold of me to ask me a question off the website, go over to the media page where it says contact Gary Wayne for an interview. Click on that. And that's my website email address. And it'll come through to me or just go directly to Genesis 6 Conspiracy at gmail.com. Again, with the number six, Genesis 6 Conspiracy at gmail.com. And, uh, and if you wanted to, if you're familiar with the first book and you wanted to get a notification when and how to buy the second book, you go to Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2 at gmail.com. You just got to send me an email when I've got the firm release date. I will send you that email in terms of ways to buy the book. Perfect. Gary, excellent. We will definitely do this again soon. And until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We will talk again tomorrow. We'll see you all then.